David at large. I'm Lodit Lopate. After working as a foreign correspondent in the Middle East and North Africa for the Italian newspaper La Repubblica, Anna Prouse went to Iraq in June 2003 to set up a field hospital in downtown Baghdad for the International Red Cross, and then went on to become the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs advisor to the Iraqi Ministry of Health and to the Ministry of Displacement and Migration. Her book about her experiences, Two Birthdays in Baghdad, was published in the U.S. in 2005. Former Italian President Giorgio Napolitano awarded her for her work in Iraq with Italy's highest-ranking honor, the Order of Merit of the Italian Republic, and she's also received the Meritorious Honor Award from the U.S. Department of State and the Honorary Red Cross Award for Extraordinary Courage, Competence, and Dedication to the 2003-2005 Red Cross and Red Crescent Mission in Iraq. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Anna Prouse to our show now. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Now, you've published four books in Italy. Uh, is Two Birthdays in Baghdad the only one that's been translated into English? Yes, it is. It is, and I was actually kind of surprised, um, and I sold all the rights to the Italian publisher, not even thinking that I might ever be published in the U.S. <laughs> what were the other books about? The other books, one is about Iran, um, where I lived and reported from extensively. Another one is about Morocco, where I also reported from. The other one is a little bit different, is former Eastern Germany. Hmm. I, I went to a German school, so I lived in Germany, so they asked me to write a book on, on that part of the world, too. You were given the title of Honorary Man by the most senior Iraqi military elite. Honorary Man? <laughs> yes. So uh, <laughs> they uh, they don't have one for women? <laughs> no, they don't. And that's, that was kind of the... the the interesting, fun, and sad part at the same time. You know, it's, uh, it, it hit me. It was, um, you know, it's, I stayed eight years in Iraq, so it was towards my sixth year or so, where some journalists came to visit, you know, what, you know, what we were doing out there. And, and they, they talked to me at a certain point and said, do you realize how weird this is? Do you realize that you're sitting at these large tables with all these, you know, fierce-looking, moustached men with guns. And, and I just walked in as if it was a normal day, and it was a normal day for me. So you, so didn't, they, face, they were, you didn't face any difficulties as a woman working at these high-level jobs in this male-dominated society, yeah. with, working with yeah. pretty much an, all men? I did initially. You know, it's, uh, I had to fight my way through, and... Um, and then eventually I succeeded, and I think I succeeded through a bunch of acts of courage. You know, in that world, courage is, is extremely highly uh, valued. Um, so, you know, I got blown up, I got shot at, and I even always made it a point in going back on the streets uh, the same day or the day after um, to just tell them, you know, you know, directly that I won't be easily terrorized. That's what they want. Terrorists want, want to terrorize. You know, and that's what then the people notice. And, you know, they say, well, she's not hiding. She's back out there. She must believe in what she's doing. Because if you get blown up and then are out there back on the street, you must believe. Either you're crazy or you do believe in what you're doing. And then eventually they they sort of adopted me, and once that um, you know took place, I think that actually being a woman helps. Um, it helps because uh, I think the level of testosterone goes down. You know, I could at a certain point say things that a man could not say. You know, it would have immediately created anger around the table. I could tell them, you're, you know, you're missing, missing, missing the point. You should do this. You should do that. I could also get mad at them in these meetings without, without them then getting mad at me. So again, at the beginning, yes, it was very challenging. Uh, but then once that, I overcame that initial stage. And again, initial meant, you know, good year. You know, and nothing happens fast in the <laughs> Middle East. You went on boar hunting trips and did hand grenade fishing to build <laughs> trust with these people. Yes. Yes, I did things that were 
totally out of my comfort zone. I had never gone hunting in my life. But then, you know, when the governor of the region that, you know, I was put in charge of tells you after he was ordered to, you know, he ordered to, you know, blow me up. <laughs> next day, he invited me on a hunting trip and we went boar hunting. And I accepted. And, uh, you know, and that's when then others, generals and all Iraqi generals, would start inviting me, you know, let's go fishing. <laughs> and I think sometimes it was to test how far they could take me. And other times, that's their pastime. That's what they do in their fun times. Um, and that's, frankly, also how you build relationships. But, you know, of course, the first time I went on a fishing trip, I thought, okay, we will just sit by, you know, the river and just fish. And that was my naivete where, no, I was given a hand grenade to, <laughs> to, to throw into the, into the river so that yeah. then the fish gets stunned and the, the kids can jump in and go grab them. So it's alternative fishing. Now, you've been described also as an athlete and an adventurer. Didn't you once have a promising professional tennis career? What what happened? I did. I was, uh, that's the only thing I wanted to do in life was play tennis. I was actually pretty talented when I was 15, 14, 15. I was among the top junior world players. And, uh, you know, my grandmother also was the first Italian to carry the Olympic flag at the Olympic Games, the Antwerpen Olympic Games, as a tennis player. So there's this tennis in my, in you know, in my blood. And uh, and then I got a very bad injury when I was 16, eight surgeries, uh, and you know I'm stubborn, as you probably can gather. And uh, only eight surgeries later, I decided, okay, I've got to do something else in my life. So what led you to, and, uh, to be to join an ambulance crew? I think it's a part of those things that are hard to explain. I was in university. A friend called and said, you know, I remember you from high school, and you would be the only one who would jump into this crazy thing. Would you like to? Uh, you know, work in ambulances as a volunteer. And, you know, we had to take tests to use heart studying for a good year, year and a half. And I did it. Mm. And I still remember my mother would say, but, but you don't even know if you see blood, whether you faint or you don't. And I was like, I feel I won't faint. You know, so I just, uh, and, you know, and then I become, became a Red Cross volunteer in ambulances. And that was sort of my Saturday night activities. And you've had uh, any number of different things that you've done. You became a journalist for one of Italy's largest newspapers. Then you became a delegate for the International Red Cross, an advisory uh, advisor to a number of troubled nations, um, So, and, and a government advisor for almost a decade in southern Iraq. So um, is it that easy to get a job at La Repubblica? No, no, I was, I was, I was surprised. I have to say, I was very surprised when I got the job. I even when I got the job, I thought it would be one of those jobs where they give you, you know, in Italy at times they don't offer you full-time employment. They test you out, they underpay you, and then they find someone else. So mm-hmm. if they use you for a year, they can do that for sure. a year. And uh, and you know, when I got the job, I said yes, but I already have a job. So I don't want to give it up for a part, you know, an employment that, you know, in a year I'm back on the street. And they're like, no, 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 this is full time. I had I had been to Iran. I had started writing the book on Iran. They had written red excerpts of the book. And they said, you know what, we just love the way you analyze things. We love the way you write. And uh, moved to Rome. I used to live and work in Milan. Can you be in Rome on Monday? And... <laughs> You know, I'm not someone who, you know, I, I make decisions on right there. So I just said, yeah, I'll be in Rome on Monday. And uh, and I was at my, that's how I moved to Rome and moved to, you know, work for La Repubblica. And uh, Pope was then posted as, uh, you know, correspondent mainly to the Middle East. And I covered Iran a lot. Well, you went to Tehran uh, to get Iranian reactions uh, to the 9-11 attacks initially, and then yes. later to Libya to look into Gaddafi's relationship with the Tarek population, and then to Yemen because Italians were being kidnapped there. So you were working on pretty high-level stories. I was. Yes, I was. You know, and 
It was, it was, you know, I think at the end of the day when a newspaper sees enthusiasm, uh, I do have to say there was one point I would say, do, do I ever get to go to the Maldives? You know, <laughs> it was always, you know, difficult, you know, when I was sent to, to Yemen. It was like, well, they're kidnapping Italians, and I'm Italian. So and why were they, idea. why were they kidnapping Italians in, in particular? Uh, because Italians really face ransom. Uh-huh. You know, so um, it's it's kind of a it's a thing. You know, also when we were in Iraq, Italians used to get kidnapped, but then um, you know, you know, kept their heads uh, on. Uh, you know, versus other countries like the Brit- British and the U.S. Um, because uh, sadly, or rightly so, I mean, it's you know, Italy does play pay ransom. I'm speaking with Anna Prouse uh, about uh, her credible experiences uh, over a, a number of years in Iraq and elsewhere. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. How long after you left the newspaper were you approached by the Red Cross to run a field hospital in Baghdad? Not long. I mean, I think it was six months a year. I, you know, I... Uh I, was an, I became an international Red Cross delegate, which comes with tests and exams and uh, psychological uh, tests and courses. And, uh, and then in 2003, uh, it was end of May, I got a phone call saying, um, would you like to set up a field hospital in downtown Baghdad? Now, what is, how does a field hospital differ from a regular hospital? What, it, what's what's it, dealt with there? It's intense. So it is sort of an emergency hospital mm-hmm. where you just set up tents and you have then an emergency ward and it's all you know run with generators and tents. It's all for emergencies and the 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 emergencies there were mainly it was a burnt unit. Um, frankly, during daytime it was a burnt unit and during nighttime it was bullet extraction. Oh. That's when, you know, in Baghdad, things went off, uh, you know, killings. In between people, killings went off. And um, and that's where they knew, the, you know, the Red Cross is there. We'll just uh, get the wounded there. And as much as you tell them, no, our expertise is in bad burns, it doesn't really matter. You're still better of an expert than any Iraqi hospital. You actually do have nurses. You do have people who care. Um, so we would just take them in and extract the bullets all night. Had your experiences as a journalist prepared you for something like that? You know, I think I was partially. I think the ambulance prepared me because you can see quite some gruesome things in an ambulance. Um, and then journalism did prepare me. Um, mainly, you know, it seems, but in, in field hospitals, there's a lot. There's a lot of action. So you need to keep your calm. And then you also need to be able to communicate, not only with patients, but especially in Iraq, with whole families, because patients come with families. And often it's families who fight for dear life among, you know, among each other. Um, so I think that the fact of being a journalist, the fact of being someone who manages to listen, to get people to get along, um, it, it helped. And organizational skills, it did help. And then, of course, there's the curiosity of a journalist. So... You know, when I also accepted, there was the journalist, journalist Anna there who was very intrigued of going to the war zone. Were you in Iraq during the Battle of Fallujah? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I was. I actually went to Fallujah a few times um, because, as you can imagine, uh, working in the health. At that point, I was working for the ministry, Iraqi Ministry of Health. And, uh, you know, they needed to identify corpses. They needed, again, to talk to families. And, uh, so yes, I was in Fallujah. Well, was um, Yeah, go ahead. No, and I have to say, there's, you know, of course, very, very sad stories. There's there's also, I remember when I first, I I used to stay on, on the U.S. base in Fallujah. And then in the morning, I would go out. And uh, I was used to in Baghdad uh, incoming rockets, you know, the, in, in the, you know, launch rockets at, at the compound where we used to stay. 
And so I knew the, you know, the giant voice goes off and then you run into the bunker and you just take cover for hours until the you know, giant voice tells you to get out of the bunker again. And in Fallujah, I was, I was again the only woman. So all of a sudden, I hear rockets. And I'm not an expert on rockets. So I hear them and I run to the bunker. And I was wondering, I was like, I'm the only one here in the bunker. Where is everyone? You know, whereas in, in Baghdad, there were plenty of civilians, and so everyone would run. I was like, where is everyone? So the next morning, I get out of the bunker, and you know, I go to have breakfast, and I see all these Marines there chatting along, and I said, like, where do you go? Because I was the only one in the bunker. And I can still remember their expression looking at me. It's like, ma'am, those were outgoing rockets, not incoming rockets. <laughs> so, <it> was, <laughs> so I stayed in hiding all night in the <laughs> So This originally was supposed to be a brief mission. How did it wound up lasting eight years? Yeah, it was supposed to be brief, again, because I thought I'd go there with the Red Cross. The idea was set up a field hospital. You know, and to your initial question, ideally field hospitals are there when there's an emergency, and then you establish, uh, you know, your mission into an already existing Iraqi hospital, and that usually lasts a few months. And, you know, that's what I did. And in the meantime, um, the Coalition Provisional Authority, led by, by the U.S., uh, came to notice me because there was, uh, I used to go a lot to the Ministry of Health. I would be accepted by terrorists. You know, at that point, uh, the Ministry of Health went into the hands of the Sadrists, Muqtad al Sadr, and I was allowed in. I think that's, again, um, you know, journalist skills, maybe the woman factor. Um, you know, I think a lot of factors help. So they said, I think we want, they thought, the U.S. thought, let's bring this woman on board and let's have her work with us. Hmm. And that's why then I, you know, left the Red Cross mission, which was, you know, dying down, and joined the coalition and worked as an advisor to the Iraqi Ministry of Health for two years. And that's when I then wanted to leave Iraq for good. That was the phase of the civil war, the Fallujahs. I had had a lot of attempts on my life. And again, Iraq is not my country. So, you know, there's a point that you say, well, why am I potentially dying for a country that's not even mine? So I decided to go home. And, uh, and that's when I was approached by General Petraeus, and he asked me to go down to southern Iraq. Hmm. And that's where the Iranian infiltration had started in southern Iraq. And his point was asked me to rebuild the south. Yeah, well, I'm we'll talk about that in just a moment. But uh, yeah. uh, following up on being uh, one of the only women there, it could be a mixed blessing, couldn't it? Weren't you once accused of being a prostitute by U.S. immigration? Yeah, that was actually a pretty sad uh, story. It was towards the end of my tour in Iraq. And uh, I, I, I was coming to the U.S. on holiday. And, um, you know, my passport is a bit of a dodgy passport, as you can imagine. You know, there's the Iraqi stamp, there's the Yemen stamp, there's the Iranian stamp. You know, so I got into secondary questioning, which, you know, is, uh, was, you know, I expected I, I, I would. I always did. And that time, you know, they started questioning me, you know, and more and more and asking me, what do you do in Iraq? And I told them what I was doing. And, and they just wouldn't believe me, you know, and then someone else would come in and question me again and ask more questions. And, and again, when I said, well, I am an advisor to, at that point, you know, down to Traers, down in the south and southern Iraq, I had the badges, you know, and they said, well, these could all be fake. And yeah, they could be, but, you know, and then, you know, they just at some point said, you're coming to the U.S. a little bit too often. I came to the U.S. a few times a year, you know, also you meet with State Department and then just take a few days off. And um, and then you say, I think you're coming out here because you're a prostitute. Hmm. And uh, and that, frankly, was shocking because, you know, I, at some point I had been really accepted and very highly respected in, in Iraq. And here I come and I'm accused of being a prostitute just because my passport looks a little bit dodgy. 
You began your book with a description of the problems you faced when you were trying to cross the border into Amman, Jordan. Uh, and that story would be almost comical if it didn't sound a, a bit ominous. Yeah, it's, uh, it, that, was, that happened a long time ago, and that's when uh, I had got uh, shot at in, in Baghdad, and um, everyone in the car got killed, quite from from me, and um, and I escaped. It's, uh, you know, it was uh, one of those moments where you do believe either in fate or you just you know you believe that it wasn't your time, wasn't there because again everyone was dead. Someone had you know unloaded a whole Kalashnikov in in the car. I managed to escape, and um, and then I collected you know bullets that hit my headrest. Um, because that bullet has no duck, uh, would have hit my head, and I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. And so I kept that bullet, and um, you know, and a few months later, I go back home, and it's my lucky bullet. You know, it's uh, it's, it's the bullet that I always had then in my backpack uh, because it, I was lucky that day. So I thought that's the lucky bullet, and so I have it in my backpack, and I'm going through customs in a month. And uh, you know, they stopped me and they said, well, you have bullets in here. I said, no, I don't. I, mean, I don't have them. I don't have guns. I don't have... So they started opening up my backpack and here's my lucky bullet. And and it's like, yeah, but it's already shot. It's, it's an empty bullet. It's, uh, empty shot. And shell. it was, you know, they, had, they confiscated it and I argued. And, uh, you know, because again, it was sort of giving up on my good luck. Um, but, so yeah, that was... Uh, that was one of my border stories. And they knew you. They'd seen you in before. A, yeah, in Amman at the border, they didn't. You know, that's a, that's a border, you know, so that's your classic border police. And uh, they just decided, um, you know, you can't travel with bullets. Later, and you don't argue. In those, in those, uh, in those uh, places, you just, you just stop arguing and say, okay, just let me get out and go home. Later, we'll talk uh, more about uh, the uh, important role that Iran plays in this story. But uh, I've just been reading in the newspapers about uh, the border that Iran has with Iraq because Iran has been so hard hit by coronavirus, um, nearly 1,000 yeah. dead. Uh, and uh, Iraq so far has been spared, and people uh, want to escape Iran into Iraq and uh, there's real problems at the, at the border, a border that I always thought was rather porous. Yeah, it's porous, especially in the south, but not so much where they want to cross right now. Also, let's not forget there is a scare um, uh, for a return of the Islamic State. Um, now, not from Iran to Iraq, but through borders. So I think there is now panic. Iraq has not been hit by coronavirus. Um, frankly, I wonder whether it's Iraq underreporting. Um, you know, there's still people uh, fighting in the streets. There's uh, there's students out there uh, protesting. So I'm kind of amazed that Iraq hasn't been hit. And you know, the hospital system is way worse in Iraq than it is in Iran. Um, so. I, I think right now it's the garden of the, you know, the, 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 they, they, they want to escape, but we, I, I am not sure that the situation in Iraq is actually better. It's just underreported. I'm speaking with Anna Prouse, uh, and Anna, uh, we're going to take a little break and try to fix the line, make the line a little better. Uh, so we thought we would play uh, during the time that we do that. A little bit of the Iraqi national anthem. That's stay with a great us. idea. So stay with us.
We are back with Anna Prouse here on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, talking about her extraordinary career. Uh, did that bring back memories, Anna, listening to the National yes. Anthem of Iraq? Yes, it does. I, you have no idea how many times I listen to that. Yes, yeah. by military bands, I suspect. <laughs> yes, uncoordinated military bands. Now, why, <laughs> you were kicked out of Saddam Hussein's trial in 2006. Why? I was kicked out because I made a, I made a mistake, which, you know, uh, considering the crimes that were being discussed in that, you know, in that room, um, there's something in the Iraqi culture that you should never do is to show your shoe soles while you're sitting down, you know, you tend to, you know, when you sit down, you sometimes put one leg on top of the other. Mm-hmm. While doing so, you can slightly, show, show, you know, show your shoe sole. And, um, you know, I even learned throughout the years how to sit down, having my legs uh, one on top of each other, but never showing the shoe soles. But after hours and hours of Saddam's trial, I just uh, was unfocused. I also was kind of irritated by... Saddam Hussein, you know, how innocent he was, and he had the Koran on his lap. Uh, he, he did the whole, I believe in God, I'm a, you know, I'm a nice guy at the end of the day. So I, was, I, just, I just sat down, relaxed on my chair, and, uh, and I showed the shoe sold. And, oh, my God, the judge got up and yelled at me. And, shame you on know, you. And I wanted to <laughs> shame on you and... And it was, you know, it was one of those moments where you would love to disappear because, you you know, I, I, I did something that I shouldn't have been doing. Uh, but at the end of the day, we were also discussing, you know, crimes against humanity and to, to, to stop everything because, of, you know, a, a minor glitch in, in, in my behavior was kind of, you know, interesting in the aftermath. You know, a- and I still see, can see Saddam's eyes. I mean, again, because I was, you know, one of the very few, if not the only woman in there, and I was quite visible in, you know, my civilian clothes. And, you know, he already when he walked in, he gave me a glare. And, uh, you know, so then when I was being, you know, sent away, uh, you know, there was, you know, this, this eyes of scorn. Mm-hmm. And you could see extremely evil eyes. I mean, it was, he, it was, you could feel his presence. It was, it was a very evil presence. Now, this is around the time that you were asked to lead the provincial reconstruction team in Dikar province, uh, September 2006. What were you doing there, setting up schools and medical facilities? Initially, yes. Um, it was, uh, it was, you know, reconstruction initially was more, let's, let's start building some the infrastructure. Um, you know, so there was no schools, there's no clinics, there's no roads, there's no electricity, sewage is terrible. Had they so been destroyed start, or had they never been, uh, Saddam never, never provided them? No, they never had been provided. Actually, the South, together with the Kurds, had been, you know, the biggest victims of Saddam Hussein. Let's not forget that uh, in the South there was the, the Marsh Arab um, uprising against Saddam Hussein. And, uh, you know, and the U.S. had promised to intervene in their support, give them air support, and the U.S. never intervened. So Saddam Hussein then uh, drained the marshes. He attacked back, he bombed the marshes, and then drained them, which is absolutely huge. They took away all the water resources from them. So these people either died or had to run up towards north, where, you know, Saddam's troops, would wait for him, war them, or run into Iran. So, of course, no wonder most of these people are deeply connected to Iran, because they, they had to flee to Iran. And then most um, of them are Shia? Yes. Iraq is, the majority of Iraq is Shia. The minority is Sunni, and, uh, you know, it's the Sunni, but, you know, Saddam Hussein was Sunni. Mm-hmm. So it was the Sunni who were always in the lead of the country and who, you know, crushed the Shia. And then, so, uh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, Jen, then, uh, as you were mentioning earlier, U.S. General David Petraeus appointed you to lead the reconstruction efforts and uh, to uh, advise the local government in the, in the South. Uh, 
uh, th- that area was dominated by Iranian militias or, or by oh, yes. or the rebellious uh, Iraqis? It was both, but it was mainly Iranian militias. You know, they, they were more powerful. They had the gunpowder. They had the power to dominate. You know, so it was it was the militias under Qasem Soleimani, who is the general who got killed a couple of months ago. So, you know, it was the Badr Corps, you know, who is the, you know, armed um, arm of, uh, of Iran in Iraq. So that's where I was sent, sort of to try to, you know, embed, get, you know, embed myself in this area, which was dominated by staunch Iranian militias. And you have and a story... He, you have a story about uh, the Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani, who uh, became a big news story this year. Yes, yes. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I it was uh, when I first arrived in uh, in southern Iraq. You know, I was I was uh, going down there, you know, to try to counter that infiltration and also to try to advise his 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 point number one man, who was the governor. Um, he was working directly for Qasem Soleimani. So, of course, I wasn't welcomed. And um, quite, you know, in the first couple of weeks, I was blown up. Um, and it was uh, ordered by Qasem Soleimani, just get rid of her so that we don't have to deal with this. And then again, showing that I wasn't going anywhere, showing that I actually believed in what I was doing. I, I, they started, you know, um, accepting me and even asking for my advice. And uh, six years later, um, when Muqtad al-Sadr, who is, you know, the religious leader in Iraq, um, decided to call a fatwa on me, which, you know, a fatwa is a death sentence. Mm -hmm. So I was becoming really annoying to him because I was setting up uh, mobile cinemas when he had shut down all the cinemas. I was doing women's programs, teaching women how to drive and opening taxi companies for women. So I had stepped up the reconstruction more from the brick and mortar reconstruction to reconstruction of the mindset. You know, so, you know, Muqtad al-Sadr did not like that and uh, decided to call a fatwa on me. And that is when I reached out to Qasem Soleimani, she was the only one powerful enough to be able to convince Muqtad uh, al-Sadr not to call the fatwa. Um, you know, having the U.S. or having any Western country intervene would have been, you know, would have you know, been to no avail because that's why they're doing it. But having one of theirs tell them, and at that point, you know, Qasem Soleimani was the most powerful man in the Middle East. They know, lift, don't, don't call the fatwa. And uh, so, you know, my feelings are kind of mixed because um, he did save my life at the end of the day. Aren't, don't so, women have more freedom in Iran than they do in most of the other Middle East countries? Yes, they do. They do. We make a lot of mistakes here. We just put them all in one bucket. You know, sometimes we speak about, you know, burqas in Iran. and No, 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 no. You do see the chador, which is the black cloak, but only in, you know, around Qom, where, you know, which is the stronghold of the Ayatollahs. That's where Ayatollah Khomeini used to live. Um, you know, and, you know, the Masha, the mausoleums. But when you walk around the streets, yes, you have to wear a bit of a headscarf, but you go to school, you can have a life, you can be in politics. There's way more freedom than in other places. Um, and women are highly educated. You know, frankly, if you told me in that region, is there one country where you would go and live, not just work, but live, or Iran would definitely be the one, you know, just because uh, there's a lot of culture, you know, compared to the others. Now, because of the fatwa, weren't you under constant surveillance with bodyguards around the clock? That was, bef- yeah, I was on constant surveillance even way before. I mean, when I went to Iraq and then I got blown up so many times uh, that they decided that I needed to have bodyguards. So, when you say blown up, you mean there were rocket attacks near you? No, well, roadside bombs. Mm. Uh, you know, when I went by, I, you know, again, that was when Qasem Soleimani ordered to put a roadside bomb when I passed by and they detonated it. And, uh, you know, I can't hear from one ear, 
um, but I'm still alive. So again, from a fracture of second, I, I it was detonated too early. Uh, so, uh, you know, there were a lot of attempts on my life. So they decided that I needed a team of, you know, security, a security team to take care of my movements and also take care of me. So I lived under protection for six years of my life, which, again, becomes an everyday, um, you know, something that you do every day. And you realize what an ordeal it is when you leave. You know, when I would go on holiday and just be able to walk without having, you know, meet myself even staring at rooftops, in, you know, seeing, checking out whether there were snipers on there, whether, you know, just just freedom. It's, it's incredible how when you don't live in freedom, how much you value freedom again. Uh, the stress must have been almost overwhelming. Uh, do you have PTSD? You know, I... I, I do not. I took, uh, you know, when I when 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 I was especially in Baghdad and everyone got killed in in my car and I survived it. You know, I I got PTSD, um, and and it was, you know, I every I think everyone has their own uh, ways of uh, fighting things. Yes, of course, I had anxiety attacks and I had panic attacks and I couldn't sleep at night. You know, and I, you know, I had a team look, look into it. And I still remember the doctors asking me, you know, do you sleep well? And they were worried because I wasn't sleeping. And my point was, you should get worried if I actually slept. Because I would be a monster if I slept with, you know, four people around me, you know, dead in a, in a, in a bloodbath. So not sleeping is, you know, I am processing it and... You know, my way of getting, uh, fighting it was I started being a runner. I just started running and the moment panic attacks kicked in, I just would put my running shoes on and run. And, uh, and that was my way of fighting it. That was my way of unstressing and, and figuring it out. You've lived in Iran, Yemen, Libya, Morocco, Tunisia, Iraq. Uh, is it easier uh, if, for a woman if she's a foreigner? I, I think it, it might be. You know, at the end of the day, um, I, I, I always try to work with, uh, also in Iraq, with Iraqi women, Iraqi counterparts. Um, what I didn't feel, you know, I could feel maybe the pressure of society there saying, well, you can't do this or you can't do that. But what I didn't feel was pressure of family. You know, there are customs. There are things that you, as a woman, you know, your husband doesn't want you to do. I didn't have a husband there, so I didn't, or I didn't have a son there. You know, interestingly, I, I had uh, started teaching women how to drive, and they're allowed to drive. They just don't drive. You know, so it's not like Saudi where they were not allowed to drive. No, they can, but no one teaches them, and it's not something that is, you know, something that people do. So, you know, I set up some schools to teach women how to drive with other women teaching them how to drive. And then this uh, this lady came in, and uh, she was actually a member of the of the provincial council, and she was happy she could drive in into work. It's like yes, but you are creating some family issues here because in you know up to now we had two cars, and my husband took one, and my son took one, and they took me into work. Uh, but now I want the car, so now every morning at breakfast <laughs> we're fighting over the cars. Which to me was like, well, welcome to normal world. You know, family fights about who's taking the car the next day. <laughs> and uh, so, again, it was uh, a little bit of getting them. It doesn't happen overnight, but getting them to, to also, you know, the men to understand, well, women can drive and now they want to drive. But to your question, I didn't have to put up with all those, you know, all those social pressures that an Iraqi or an Iranian or a woman from Yemen have to deal with. Is it true that some clinics in Iraq were transformed into brothels? Well, I, I can have, I have, you know, I definitely have one example about it. And uh, it's, uh, you know, sometimes we foreigners do things in the best of, you know, intent, intention, but it's hard to do the right thing when you don't have boots on the ground. So, you know, that being said, it's hard to also for NGOs and organizations to be out there. Um, so there was this organization who decided, well, we'll build a clinic 
And there is also this, they just trust anyone. So there's some sheikh who shows up and says, oh, I really need this clinic. And they trust him and they just decide to build a clinic. And, you know, I was boots on the ground and I was like, but that clinic is in the middle of nowhere. Why would you bring a clinic <laughs> where people can't even go to? Um, but then eventually I was told, just let them build a clinic and let's move on. And a few months later, after the clinic was built and a big, you know, ribbon cutting with officials, uh, you know, government officials came. And I was still wondering who, who the hell would come in a place like this? It's completely isolated. And it's in the marshes. So it's mainly where, you know, the police is doing counter, you know, Iranian infiltration, smuggling of arms, etc. So people don't live out here. So then one day I was passing by and I, I just saw some cars in the front. So I said, oh, maybe I was wrong. So I, uh, I go to the, to the clinic. I see a bunch of shoes outside. You know, as you do in the, in the Muslim world, you take your shoes off. I said, oh, maybe I'm, I was wrong. Maybe people do come out here to go to the clinic. Hmm. And then when I went in, it was, uh, it was one of those moments where it's like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> it, and it, was, it had been transformed into a brothel. You know, for all those you know, police and security forces, you know, who had to hunt down arms smuggling and all the rest. And, um, you know, and it had transformed into a brothel. Of course, then I was told you have to go to the chief of police and tell him to, you know, shut it down. It's then hard to go to a chief of police. Well, you, you, you go, but then, you know, why would he shut it down? I mean, it's his men in there. And it's the only use they can make out of it because there's no way doctors would even go out there to work. So, I mean, it's it's an interesting place. When did you leave Iraq for the last time? I left uh, on the 30th of June 2011. Hmm. That was, uh, you know, at the end of the year, everyone, troops and civilians, everyone had to leave um, leave Iraq. But so I'm I left. Uh, I'm assuming that you've been following what's going on there. Uh, and you probably know a lot more, understand a lot more about how these things work. There hadn't been much activity against Americans by Iran and the Iraqi militia groups like Qatayb Hezbollah until recently. Um, why do you think it suddenly picked up again? Because we um, we had, you know, uh, for I mean, that, that was, in the, when I read things now, it's as it used to be. You know, we got rocketed constantly every night in the bunkers. You know, then things slowed down, frankly, because we had a common enemy, which was the Islamic State. So all energy went into defeating the Islamic State in Iraq, kicking out the Islamic State in Iraq. Now that the Islamic State is out of Iraq, now we go back to, okay, now we're fighting each other again. Because let's not forget the Islamic State, Iran was the biggest fighter against the Islamic State. Islamic State is not so much, of course, they, they are against the Western world, but they're mainly against the Shia world. They, the, to them, it's the impure Islam. So the Islamic State, you know, the, the biggest enemy was Iran. Um, so, you know, the, the, big, the big battle was, like, you know, U.S. and Iran fighting the Islamic State in Iraq. And now no uh, longer now allies. Now so Now they're no longer there. Okay, let's. Let's let's go back to same old, same old. Now, haven't your experiences in Iraq and uh, led governments and companies to draw upon your expertise in other areas like Somalia, Syria, Libya, and various bordering countries? Uh, what did they want to know from you? Well, you know, when I left Iraq, I was, um, you know, I, I I came to the U.S. And I did say I didn't want to work any longer in Iraq. You know, there's, there's a moment where you need to cleanse a little bit. And the last thing I wanted is then to get to hate a country that I had, you know, deeply loved. So I, I worked, you know, they started calling me in African countries, like in Somalia. You know, there's terrorism in a lot of places. And, you know, it's not what the, the patterns that you see in one are pretty similar in other countries. You know, so I worked quite a lot in Somalia, in Mali, you know, in other places of the world. And it was mainly, you know, also how do we use, you know, countering terrorism. Um, it's often done with means that are a little more nuanced than just, you know, um, shooting at them. You know, what terrorist organizations are very good at is creating jobs, creating vacuums. 
When we see, like in Somalia, all these poor fishermen are becoming pirates. Well, they're not. They're, they, it's a job, you know. So, you know, they, they, they don't make enough money to support their families by being fishermen. So here, all of a sudden, they're hired as pirates and make way more money than they would as fishermen. So the point in the long run is, like, how do we counter that? And the way to counter that is, like, let's create jobs which are not piracy, but, you know, other kinds of jobs so that they would quit piracy and, uh, you know, and, and, and have other jobs. So that was more my line of work when I left Iraq to advise governments on don't just fight them with weapons, fight them with the intellect. And didn't the Pope <laughs> also invite you to, to have a private audience to talk about what was going on in Iraq? Yes, yes, he did. I was in Iraq still at that time, and uh, that's one of those stories where I got um, I got an email from the Pope from the Vatican, and I thought it was a prank. Because mm-hmm. I mean, who 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 the hell would expect an email from the Pope? And this was the former Pope, uh, Pope Ratzinger, and uh, so I thought it was you know some of my friends are just making fun of me, and I responded in a pretty snotty way, saying, "Oh come on, you know, Excellency, get a life." <laughs> because I thought he was friends. <laughs> so, so, so then I got a very angry phone call from the Italian ambassador saying, how dare you, <laughs> you know, use that tone with the Pope. And I said, that's not the Pope. Come on. And then he's like, no, yes, it, he actually is. And he wants to talk to you. So you better, you know, get on a flight and go and, you know, and, and talk to, to him. And I did. And um and, you know, it was interesting to know. This is the Pope who abdicated afterwards. Mm-hmm. This was like a couple of years before. And, you know, he had, uh, you know, this very German accent, spoke Italian with a German accent. So we Italians never really warmed up to him because he, he came through a little too harsh to us. Now, um, so I walked in. Yeah, go ahead. Finish. No, so I, I walked in, and it was very interesting to see how you know, his eyes were extremely sad. So when two years later he abdicated, it was like you could see it in his eyes. It was, it was, it was a very interesting encounter. Now, we have very little time left, but I wanted to point out that uh, now you work for Google in its moonshot factory. What do you do there? Well, like, I deal with uh, complicated governments. You know, it's, uh, you know, Google is a worldwide company. And uh, and I am an expert in dealing with complicated governments, you know. So that's what I do. With I build relationships, you know, and that is something, um, you know, that in this part of the world it's hard to understand that build a relationship. You need to actually travel to those places. You need to sit down with people. You need to have time. And we never have time on this side of the world. Whereas once I was told a very interesting sentence, in, it was in Africa, and uh, the government official was, you know, they now call me Sister Anna. It's like, Sister Anna, you might have the watch, but we have the time. You know, and this is something that here, especially, you know, in Silicon Valley, we don't have the time. So you're living in, um, in I mean, California now? I live in California now, yes. I travel. I just came back from Peru just in the nick of time before they closed the border uh, on Sunday. And you were given a U.S. citizenship for extraordinary merits. Yes, I have been given that, yes. So you are both Italian and you're in two of the hotspots for uh, coronavirus, but that's a whole other story (laughs) (laughs) and maybe some other time because we have pretty much run out of time, but what uh, a pleasure it's been talking with you, Anna. Well, likewise. Thank you. It was very, very, you know, it's nice to talk about these and, you know, have some interest about, yes, coronavirus hit, <laughs> but there's a lot of other challenges Absolutely. around the world. Anna Prouse talking about Iraq and related subjects. Thanks again. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our show and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. 
We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter. Also our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And you can uh, leave comments about what you've been hearing on any of those sites. We are preempted tomorrow for special WBAI programming, but we hope that you can join us again uh, on Thursday when Catherine Stewart will discuss her book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And we'll see you then. 